The question I asked you last week has been asked to me today by someone who's been reading ahead. Why in the world are we studying Judges? I love Judges. It's a great book. Now, I'm not going to say it's my favorite book. I I think I've picked enough of those in our long tune-up series. Uh, One thing I replied is we're running out of books, so uh, we got to do Judges if we're going to cover the the whole Bible. But I love Judges, and we've got lots in front of us that's going to be really beneficial and sweet. I, I republished the little, um, the little circle, the cycle that we find. So I wanted you to have that one more time. If we looked at it last week, that should be on your front sheet. So if you'll start at the top, here is what happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. First of all, the people rebel, rebel against God. And then God is angry with his people. God brings oppression by enemies upon the people. And then the people cry out in repentance. And then salvation comes through a chosen judge as God ordains someone to save the people. Peace comes. The judge dies. And here we go again. Now, I, um, as we think about it and we think about Israel, uh, this cycle is not or should not be all that unfamiliar to us. Um, maybe we at some point in our lives have lived this cycle. I hope not right now. If so, then I trust judges will be beneficial to you. But this is not an unfamiliar cycle that we see in the world today. So, okay, let's, let's plunge in and let's talk for a moment about Joshua and setting up the book. I want to read the first verse. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? So we have the death of Joshua, read about that in the book of Joshua, which is a book we did some time ago. We are invited to look back. There is an implied invitation in this verse to look to the past. Joshua was Moses' God-chosen successor. He and Caleb alone in their entire generation remained faithful and entered the promised land of Canaan. Just to remind you... uh, Twelve spies were sent into the land, and you remember that all of them except Joshua and Caleb saw the giants in the land, saw the obstacles, saw the the problems, and they came back with a majority report that said, we can't do it, it's too difficult, we won't succeed, so we need not do it. Joshua and Caleb said, whoa, Nelly, in a manner of speaking. That's not true. God said, this land is going to be yours. So we recommend that we obey God and follow what he said to do, and he will deliver the land into our hands. Now, which report did the people uh, support? Well, they didn't support Joshua and Caleb. And so what was the result of all of that? A long time of wandering in the wilderness. 
And Joshua and Caleb survived those years, survived not only to enter into the promised land, but to lead the people into the promised land. Now in Numbers 14.30, God through his servant Moses said, not one of you, speaking to the people, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Now, I, I, I don't have time to go back and dissect that verse like I'd like to. It, this is just intended to remind us. Can you imagine the cold feeling you would have gotten hearing those words? I mean, we're, we are on the edge of, of the promised land. God said, I'll give it to you. We adopted the majority report that says we can't do it. And now look what we've missed. I can hardly imagine how they must have felt as they heard those words of Moses as he spoke the words of God. The book of Joshua follows God's work in bringing Israel into the land that he promised. God keeps his promises always. Always. Now, if you, if you go back a few pages in your Bible from Judges to Joshua to the first chapter, verse 3, hear these words. They'll sound familiar to you. You've read them many times before. God said, I will give you every place where you set your foot, as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon and from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. No one will be able to stand against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Who's he talking to? Joshua. And to the people. Be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their ancestors to give them. What encouraging words for Joshua. And be assured that on many occasions in difficult, challenging moments, Joshua remembered those words. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will deliver all of the land into your hand, the hands of the people, just like I said I would, just like I promised to your forefathers. God tells them the size of the land. Here are your boundaries. Here are the borders. Here's how far the land will go. You come to verse 7, and he reminds Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Those words spoken to Joshua, but I'd like for us to appropriate those words for ourselves today. Because I believe that's God's intention. That we take those words and we apply it to our lives, our hearts, our situation. Be strong and courageous. 
Obey the word of God. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Keep the words of the law. Keep them on your lips. Meditate on them day and night. Be careful to do what is written in the book. And have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be discouraged. You don't have to raise your hand, but anybody here ever been discouraged? I expect you have. I have. But the scripture says, do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Why not? For the Lord, your God, will be with you wherever you go. Um, that's why we did Joshua before Judges a long time ago. Though Those words get us off to a great start in the book of Joshua. And I love that book. God lays out for them the size of the land. He says, be faithful, expect success as you are obedient. So Joshua, the book, tells of victories, victories, victories. As the book nears its end, go back and read it, there's much left to be done. The land is open for them. It's theirs for completing the task. But they do need to tie together all the details. They've moved into the land. They have by and large taken the land. But they need to finish and they need to settle it. And they need to drive out the current now co-occupants of the land. God made it clear from day one. Drive them out. Drive them out. Now, um, was God being mean to the ites? Vengeful toward the ites? This is a spiritual command, and what by that what I mean is he is giving them this command as a protection for Israel. Because God knew If you try to coexist with them side by side by side by side, it will not work because you, Israel, will succumb to temptation, to sins, and to idolatry. It will not work. Well, what happened? It didn't work. (laughs) They tried Or maybe I should say they didn't try to do what God told them to do, and so they ended up with a big fat mess on their hands. Now, if you go to the end of Joshua, near the end of Joshua, to the 23rd chapter, verse 7, you'll read God's reminder. Well, let me go back to verse 6. You can't skip that. Be very strong. We're nearing the end of the book. Joshua's given his farewell to those who are going to remain after he's gone. Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. So Joshua remembered those words from the first chapter. Now he's repeating them for the people. Now verse 7, do not associate with these nations that remain among you. Do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them, but you are to hold fast to the Lord your God, as you have until now. In verse 12 and 13, But if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, 
then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. Um, why don't you say what you really mean, Joshua? <laughs> Pretty direct, is he not? The command to drive them out is not a vengeful command. It is a spiritual command for the protection of the nation. Follow me, be brave, rely on my promises, and not on your own instincts. It is hard to be brave without faith in God. Let me say that again. If you only remember one thing when you leave today, and I'd be happy with that. It is hard to be brave without faith in God. Faith-based bravery versus cowardice. That's what the people faced. And Joshua said, be brave and obedient. Faith in God's promises means not always following the expected, even so-called rational path. As Joshua dies... It will take real faith on the part of the people to move forward. Their leader's gone. There's no designated leader to succeed him. It's going to take real faith to move forward. And we'll see how much faith they had as we proceed. But I think you probably already know the answer to that. Now hear me well when I say this. Church, one of the greatest destroyers of the church is common sense. Horse sense. You know what I mean? Do you catch my drift? One of the greatest destroyers of the church is common sense. We say common sense dictates this path when God says go in another direction. So we wilt in the face of challenge. We look at numbers or human logic. God says, move out, put your feet in the Jordan. I am with you. We say, no, if we do that, we'll drown. Well, that doesn't make sense, God. The challenge is too big. We can't do it. But what we really mean when we say we can't do it is we won't do it. We won't do it. And God says, remember me. And the church says, remember the obstacles. Listen to the banker. The water's too deep. The river moves too fast. And we'll pull back. And when we do, we miss the blessing God intended from the very beginning. When Israel followed her priest into the Jordan, God did what only God could do. But he didn't do it until Israel obeyed. The unbelievable, the illogical, the impossible, the task that was, humanly speaking, too big, and he rolled the waters back and Israel walked across on dry dry ground. Today, we say we believe in miracles. But frankly, most Christians do not. They do not believe in miracles. They give lip service to it. 
and say, oh, look what God can, what God can, most many, I'm not saying you, you have to decide that. But what I'm saying is most Christians say they believe in miracles, but they do not believe in miracles. And so now is the time to finish the job. But the ites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the other ites, the ites are so many. They are so strong. And it's just easier to live with them and make nice than it is to be obedient and finish the job. And Israel will make a, pay a terrible price for that decision. There's no more Joshua. And we hear his closing words to his people in the 24th chapter, beginning with verse 15. If serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, and their words are forever recorded in Scripture, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. Really? It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. I sort of get the opinion Joshua is not buying what they're saying. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has said, after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you're witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and obey him. On that day, Joshua made a covenant for the people, and there at Shechem, he reaffirmed for them decrees and laws, and Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak tree near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. Then he dismissed the people. I wonder if in the ensuing years, as people walk past that stone underneath that tree, if they ever glanced at it and thought, oh, yeah, I remember that day. I remember that promise that we made or a promise that my father made or my grandfather made. I remember the stories that have been told about that day. Do you think it ever crossed their mind? Well, let's talk about conquest for a moment. We've got about five minutes. 
beginning with verse 2 now of Joshua 1. So all that time we covered one verse. But fear not, we we will speed up the process a bit. A partial look back even as we look forward. So let's begin with the second part of verse 1 and read through verse 7. Who of us is to go up first to fight against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah shall go up. I have given the land into their hands. The men of Judah said to the Simeonites, their fellow Israelites, come up with us into the territory allotted to us to fight against the Canaanites. We, in turn, will go with you into yours. So the Simeonites went with them. When Judah attacked, the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hands, and they struck down 10,000 men at Bezek. It was there that they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him, putting to rout the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, and they chased him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and big toes. I'm sorry I didn't read that before you ate much. Then Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. They brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. Let's talk about that passage for a moment. We have some immediately some initial success. Now remember this is partially looking back, partially looking forward. So Judah and Simeon are going to work together. If you have in your Bible a map of the 12 tribes of Israel, you you can easily find as you look to the southern part of the map that uh, Simeon, the territory of Simeon, is within the territory of Judah, surrounded by by Judah. Uh, It's the southern promised land, as it were. Simeon has uh, cities that we've heard of, Beersheba and Ziklag, Judah has Bethlehem, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gath, Beth Shemesh, Hebron, Gaza, and we'll see that they're going to be the ones to to run the ites out of Jerusalem. Although Jerusalem is right on the border of Judah and Bethlehem, so we'll talk about that in, in a moment. Uh, not Judah and Bethlehem, Judah and Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. So in, in the second part of verse 1, they asked the Lord, who of us is to go up to fight against the Canaanites? Who, who answered that question? Who does it say? Who are, they, who are they talking to? They're talking to the Lord. Who gives the answer? Well, we have the Holy Spirit in our lives today. He's the one who guides us and directs us. It is probable quite possible that they cast lots to decide the answer to that question. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Old Testament casting of lots, God controls it. That even goes into the book of Acts, as we know, before the Holy Spirit indwelling in believers began no longer to cast lots, but to depend on the leadership of the Holy Spirit. There's some hard fighting ahead, But understand the Lord has already determined the outcome. Now in verse 3 and 4, the Canaanites are really the, all the inhabitants of the land are Canaanites. Now, 
Sometimes other ites are named, but they are all under the umbrella of the Canaanites. So there's Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and other ites, but they're all under the umbrella of the Canaanites who occupy the land. In verses 5 and 6, Adonai Bezek, meaning Lord of Bezek, a place that was likely just a bit northwest of Jerusalem. He is defeated. His people are, his troops are defeated. He is captured and he is rendered incapable of ever fighting again. He would not be able to hold a weapon and he won't be able to march or run. No longer will he be a factor. He will not be able to oppose God's people in the future. And so he is, uh, he is, he is in verse seven quoted as talking about how, in a way, how ironic is this? What a turnabout has come. There are 70 kings whose toes and thumbs I've cut off, and now the same thing has happened to me. That number 70 can, could be a, intended to be a literal number, 70 kings, or it could be representative or symbolic for a whole bunch of kings. Whatever the case may be, here's a turnabout. For Adonai Bezek, he's taken to Jerusalem by his own people. Now, how do we know that by his own people? Because Judah, in verse 8, is going to take Jerusalem. So Adonai Bezek dies or is humiliated, dies a humiliated death in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem may be the most famous city in the world. The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem, verse 8, and took it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. Jerusalem has existed as a city since 3000 B.C. It's been a city in that place since 3000 B.C. Fascinating, amazing place. Some of you have had the chance to go to the Holy Land. You've been there. There's no more fascinating, amazing place in all the world than Jerusalem. Now, when we read verse 8, we say, yeah, okay, they did it. They put the city to the sword and set it on fire. So they took the city. Mm, Not quite, not quite true. Go ahead to verse 21 of chapter 1. We won't get there today. But it says the Benjamite, Benjaminites, Benjamites, excuse me, the Benjamites did not drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the Benjamites. What, how'd that happen? I thought the Judah, Judah just burned the whole place down. They, they did, but they didn't occupy, apparently. They did not occupy Jerusalem. They burned it walked off and left it. And so after they moved on, apparently, the Jebusites of the Canaanites returned and rebuilt or occupied whatever was left. Now, more to come on that. The center of the tribe of Judah would become Hebron. We say Hebron, it's Hebron, but we say Hebron. I mean, that's that's southern talk. Hebron, 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 or Hebron. That will become the center of tribal life for Judah. 
Jerusalem will be Canaanite until who? David. Until David. Now, Jerusalem, if you look at a map for the tribes, is on the line between Judah and Benjamin. I, I, the, the scripture doesn't go into all detail that we might want to know what happened here, what happened there. But maybe neither Benjamin nor Judah took full responsibility for the total subjugation of Jerusalem. Judah burned it, walked off and left it. Benjamin didn't do anything. And so the ites come back and occupy Jerusalem. And, and that will be a thorn in the flesh in the days to come. Now, we're going to stop there. We're going to pick up at verse 9 next week. We're going to see Israel moving south and west of Jerusalem. We're going to see our first hero or our first judge. His name is Othniel. We're going to move into chapter 2 and read some unforgettable words of God who said, I promised you, I promised you, I promised you, and you didn't do it. You didn't do it. You didn't drive them out. We're going to see an entire litany of cities as we finish chapter 1, an entire list of cities, and over and over and over again it says they defeated so-and-so, but they didn't drive them completely out. They defeated so-and-so, but they didn't drive them completely out. What do we call that? Incomplete obedience. Those of you who are mamas and daddies, how did it go when your children... Were, in, were partially obedient rather than totally obedient. That didn't work, did it? Didn't work for me when I was growing up. Believe me, I tried. Partial obedience is not good enough. God expects total obedience. And Israel will pay a price for generations to come because of their incomplete obedience. Okay? So that's where we'll pick up next time. Hope to see you next Wednesday. Father, thank you for your word. And wow, we stand amazed at what we're reading. And we thank you for promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. I pray that we will be obedient totally, not partially, but totally obedient to you, that we'll remember your words and that we will follow you faithfully today and in the days to come. May we be a people faith, a people of hope, a people of courage. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.